Hello and welcome to Founder and Chief, Azus podcast. I'm Paul McGlone, Head of Business Development. Azus is an independent financial services group working across public and private capital markets in the UK. We work alongside many of the most exciting businesses in the UK and we are passionate about supporting our clients. This podcast is about the people behind these businesses. In this episode, I'm talking to Mark Bartlett, CEO of Strix Group PLC. Strix is a global leader in the innovation, design and manufacture and supply of kettle safety controls, heating and temperature controls, steam management and water filtration technologies. On any normal day, Strix kettle controls are used by over 1.2 billion people in more than 100 countries and by over 10% of the world's population. I will confess that Strix and Mark have a special place in my heart, so I'm delighted to have Mark on this podcast. The Strix IPO that Zeus led on in 2017 was the first IPO I'd personally been involved with, and the listing on the 8th of August 2017 cemented what had been a whirlwind four months from when I first met Mark on the Isle of Man to Zeus listing Strix on the AIM market where we raised £190 million. Since IPO, Strix has gone on to reach the height of nearly £400 million market cap and has completed multiple acquisitions along the journey. During this podcast, I would like Mark to talk about the IPO and his life as a CEO of a PLC. Mark, as I said in my introduction, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Do you want to talk to our listeners about where we're sat today? Yeah, finally, uh, with, with COVID sort of starting to disappear, we actually managed to get over to Talaika, which was one of our recent acquisitions. So we're actually sat here overlooking the hills of Vicenza, um, very sunny, going to get up to 35 degrees at the weekend so yeah not a bad place to be you've got a nice glass of wine for this podcast absolutely mark talk to me how does a man from our broth find himself the ceo of strix and ipoing strix yeah our broth seems quite a long time ago um obviously born in born in our broth uh, left scotland when i was three as you can probably tell by the accent um, gradually moved south with my family um father was sort of moving around in, in, in his business and settled most of my time um, in the south of England, between Brighton and, and Southampton and Portsmouth. Um, started my career um, at Brighton Polytechnic, as it was then. Um, did one of those sponsorship courses for years and managed to get into a company um, that specialised in materials testing as part of that, that process. Planning to be there for a year, ended up there 18 years, in fact, um, and moved through from, from being... Yeah, the student um, to actually being the MD of, of both that company and also managing the business units in America because it was taken over by an American corporate company as well. Um, I then got uh, headhunted into a completely different industry sector, decided I was just going to change the world and do things differently uh, and moved into a wastewater company, believe it or not, um, that was based in, in London, a uh, Swedish company in fact. Uh, and that was a, an 18-month program transforming a company that was you know, losing a little bit of the profit at the time and just turning that around. And that, that was an interesting task. And having been in that American sort of corporate environment, you know, it, it was a very good background to, to change a lot of things very quickly and, and move on. Uh, and, and very interesting, um, working with a Swedish company, a completely different environment. And then uh, I got a phone call saying, would you like to work for a company making kettles? Um, that was a bit of a shock. Uh, so, you know, I probably rejected it four times. Um, and then finally sort of said, where was it? They said, on the Isle of Man. I'm like, where? Yeah. Um, and then obviously we, the, we started having some conversations. Uh, I, I went to the company. Um, and I think my first task when I got there was, if, it was just actually on the Easter Bank holiday. And I was told, well, you're going to China for seven weeks so you can get used to it and immerse yourself in it. So, yeah, quite a, quite a culture shock. Nice, nice. No, thank you. Now, that, that does set the scene nicely in terms of hearing it firsthand, your career and how you've done the varied roles to where you are today. 
So Strix has got many sites across the globe. And to be fair, your travel, as we've discussed previously, has probably gone down or definitely has gone down since since COVID hit. What are the challenges that you face, whether that's sort of daily or monthly, managing a business that has so many international sites? Yeah, it's, it's been it's been very interesting. So you're actually joined Strix um, working in the south of England and I was actually commuting from Brighton to Chester um, which was an interesting commute Um, so spending a lot of time on the road obviously and on the phone. Um, I then moved over to Hong Kong for 11 years uh, and every month I was flying back to do the sort of the board meetings and so on so yeah we were traveling extensively I was traveling extensively and going to China on a regular basis for for operational review meetings and so on Um, and then you know eventually yeah we decided as a family that actually it was it was time perhaps to reconsider moving back your family changing getting older Um, the children actually at all finished their education in, in Hong Kong. We had four boys out in, in, in Hong Kong at that point in time. So at that point, we moved back to the Isle of Man. And I was really trying to reverse the situation. So I'd be in the head office in the Isle of Man and go back to Hong Kong and China on a regular basis. Of course, then then, then COVID sort of hit. Um, and for two years, you couldn't travel out to Hong Kong. In fact, still today, I haven't been able to get to Hong Kong because of the quarantine. Um, and that really has changed the business significantly. I mean, fortunately, as a company, we always had um, the use of video conferencing and we used it extensively. Our engineering teams were located in China and Man. So every morning, without fail, you know, all, all four or five of our video systems were being used 100%. But it has changed the way we work. And, and today, you know, we are managing that business very much remotely. I think the benefit we have is we have really good people in those, those different locations. You know, COO in, in China can be 100% trusted. He runs that very much as a Western site. Nice. So I have no concerns at all about how it's being run. You know, I join all of the, the operation review meetings by video conference on a regular basis. You know, I'm sure you know, as, as things change and, and start to recover, we will be going back. But yeah, we'd never get back to that same level of travel. I mean, perhaps once a quarter or, or yeah, three times a year would be much more appropriate now. Do you look back and think you were crazy with the amount of travel you do, or do you miss that and think actually no, you you, you would you would wanted to hurry back to where it was? Um, no, I, I mean I, I miss I miss some of the travel without doubt, and I certainly miss the heat of Hong Kong. Although actually the change is quite nice yeah, as it's well. Quite nice there. <laughs> but um, no, I I, th- I think yeah, definitely the world has changed, and and our world has changed. I don't I don't regret the way it was being done then. I mean, we had to build up that trust and we had to build the right teams in places like Hong Kong and China. And at the time I joined the company, they didn't exist. So we brought a lot of people in. Um, So yeah, that that was almost necessary to sort of build that team and build the engagement between us. Um, And yeah, just the rapport, you know, to get to know people and and know how they work. Um, But today, I think it's a very different business to what it was 11, 12 years ago. It's faster, more dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. You're a leader in many of the markets that you operate in. How does Strix go around maintaining that market position and how do you manage to keep such a high-performing team? I mean, they're, they're, two, they're two very different questions. I mean, I, I think um, as a business, we are very, very unique. Uh, we, 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 we obviously sell components, but actually we, we do so much more than selling components. We design kettles, we, we design heating elements, you know, we sell um, our OEMs products to brands and retailers around the world. So we are, a, you know, across the whole of the value chain and all we're trying to do is whatever we can to sell more kettles so we sell more controls in in that part of our business Um, and it it is a very unique business model we also 
you know, really sort of took kettles over to China in the early stages when you go back sort of 18, 20 years ago. You're working with the OEMs to really educate them in terms of Western quality standards and so on. So we have okay. some fantastic relationships. We can literally walk into pretty much, well, outside of COVID times anyway, you can walk into pretty much any of the OEMs' factories without being announced you know, and, and walk around and, and work with any of those people. Uh, we also had the same with the brands and retailers, and in particular the brands. You know, we helped them move their, their tooling over to China. Uh, and many times we actually had people on the, the production lines in China helping that happen. Okay. So the relations that we have are, are you know, in, in, incredible at both sides, and that gives you a tremendous barrier to entry. But I think as you look at the, the, the sort of the business, there's, there's some other things that we are doing. I mean, the controls themselves are very complex. Each control has about a thousand critical dimensions that we measure mm -hmm. on the production line. So they, they're quite hard to produce. We have worked very hard to put in automation in, you know, across the factory. We're 73% automated now in, in, in wow. China. Big number. Yeah, big number. And yeah, that, that really helps us in terms of our cost base. So we've got mm -hmm. a very competitive cost base. But also we're continually you know, um, researching new ways to do things, reducing costs, making it harder, if you like, for competitors to follow. Okay. Yeah, and we, we've, we've got plenty of plans in the future to make, to make it that much harder as well. The other thing that we do is, is we, we, um, we track products in the marketplace. So we will go to the markets in, in Europe, for instance. We will test products in our laboratory. We fail them because we know where the weaknesses are of our competitors' products. And then we'll go to the local authorities and get those removed. So nice. we're often called the policemen of our industry. And yeah, we, we do work very hard to make sure we can protect you know, our own IP in particular, but also the safety of the, of the products. Yeah, sure. The, you know, the, you know, the safety threshold and the benchmark and the quality products that are at my, you know, in my home or in a hotel room, wherever your, your products are, that you're not going to have some form of safety issue. How, if I'm at home, then how do I know I've got Strix cattle? Really, we get asked that question a lot. I'm afraid, yeah, we, we get a lot of, um, we get accused a lot of the time that we go into a hotel room, the first thing we do is lift up a kettle, and I'm afraid it's true. It's the first thing we do. So there's a number of ways of doing it. Actually, when you lift up the kettle, you can actually see on the control the word Strix on the, on the control itself. So that's one way of doing it. Um, most of the competitors, when you lift the kettle off, it should automatically switch off if it's a strict control. Many of the competitors don't. So if you put it back on the control, it will continue to boil. Okay. Um, so there are there are some unique characteristics, <coughs> but yeah, it, it's um, you can physically see the strict symbol on the control. Okay, thank you, Mark. Many of the businesses and individuals that we've spoken to so far in this series have been private companies. Evidently, you're very different being a PLC. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I thought it would be really helpful to get you on this particular um, podcast was to educate our listeners with your experiences so when you were the CEO of Strix and you completed the IPO in August 2017 take us back to 2017 and maybe before we met for the first time on that on that meeting and um, on the Dalaman which, which we often chuckle around because there was a few a few um, issues that were that, that, that will remain private and confidential but made it a very enjoyable meeting what was your view around an IPO did you think it was possible to IPO Strix at that moment and did you think it was a realistic exit point at some stage of the journey or was it the meetings that you and I had where you thought that an IPO was would, would become a reality just talking about before the IPO what was your vision on that I, I think um you know I, I, I took over as CEO in 2015 and my, my remit was to, to exit the business um, the owners very much believed that exit was a private equity or a trade sale, um, and we were doing a lot of work on the, on the basis of that. Um, the view of the of the owners at that point was very much that that it was not the right business for an IPO, um, no question about that. And yet yeah, their views of IPO were were quite different, and they were sort of looking at, for instance, places like Hong Kong and so on, where 
yeah, you need to have you know, strong double-digit growth to be able to do the IPO. I think from our own management team, you know, myself and CFO Rodres, you know, we mm-hmm. we had a different view. Um, we would always would have preferred the IPO, but okay. I guess we had been sort of educated to a degree that it wasn't possible. Um, and you know, not only because of the type of business we had, but also because you know, we had to convince the owners to be able to do that as well. Okay. So I think you know there was always a view from our perspective that it was probably the best for the, the company and for the management team. Um, but there was doubts as to whether we could ever make it happen. Okay, okay. How did an IPO then become a reality for Strix? Sounds like maybe there was persuasion or education from the from the owners to be able to say that this could be a reality. You're, you're, you're looking for credit here, aren't you? <laughs> to, to be honest, I mean, there's a number of things that, that, that took place. I mean, first of all, you know, you, know, you, you as a company came, came to us and, or came to our owners and, and suggested it. Um, and you managed somehow to get that meeting with us. Um, at that time, we were already in discussions with trade and, mm-hmm. and with private equity. So, you know, that wasn't an easy task in itself, to be honest. Um, in the end, you know, we persuaded, along with yourselves, in, in truth, we persuaded the owners to give us a chance. Um, and that was a very, very difficult discussion to have um, because they didn't actually believe it would happen. Had they done an IPO before? Um, no, not for a very long time anyway, and, and yeah, not, not with our type of business. So it, I think that was one of the issues. They were sort of a little bit out of touch with that. But I think yeah, the, 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 um, the owner in the end, to be fair, was, was happy for us to give it a go, but with some very, very tight constraints. So we were basically told that we would need to, to get um, confidence from a number of investors so from some test marketing that we could get to a 60-70% funding of, of that and then they would consider it. In the meantime, we were still doing the trade and the private equity deal. So for us, it was, it was a very, very tense time. Um, I'm pleased to say, you know, we, we put a lot of effort in and, and you know, particularly with yourselves. Um, we did those, those 21 meetings, I think it was initially, got way over the 60%. And at that point, they said, you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll run. We feel confident. Yeah, well, do you know... They didn't ever say we'll feel confident, okay. and actually, I don't think they were confident. Okay. Um, but they they were prepared because of the short time frame to let us give it a go. Okay. Keen to focus on you as an individual, as a CEO. Did you have any preconceptions, potentially even reservations, about becoming a CEO of a PLC, um, and have your experiences on the market changed what you were in 2017? It's an interesting question because I think, you know, people around me, um, you know, some of the, the, the previous management team of the company that I'd, I'd taken over from, and even probably the owners of the company at the time, didn't think I was the right profile to be a CEO of a PLC company. Um, yeah, they saw me, I mean, my background was engineering, mm-hmm. and although I spent most of my time actually in marketing and sales after, after being that yeah. engineer. Um, so they, they, they saw me as a, a bit of a, um, an introvert and therefore not the right person to do that. For me, it, it was it was just a great challenge. You know, for me, you're you're selling the company. You're selling every day. You're talking to an investor. You're selling the, the strengths and the benefits of that company. So I actually was really quite excited about the whole thing. And you know, I think the the um, the, the the whole IPO process for both myself and, and Rogers, our CFO, was it was a really great experience. Really tough. I mean, we did the, we did the whole process in twelve weeks with yourselves. I mean, that that's got to be quite a, close to a record, I would think. Um, yeah, but it, it was it was very very intense, but really satisfying to go through that process. 
to those who are listening and to the podcast, what what are your commitments to the city? And is it shirt and tie, suit, and you're having to report to the city every single month, or is it not that at all? Educate us. Yeah, not that at all. And, and you know, I, I um, private equity for me was was quite intense, but it was it was also quite short sighted. And yeah, the, the company we had, they they invested in the company, so that was all good. But yeah, it was all about you know, have you hit the numbers this month? You know, mm-hmm. can you get the cash back here? Yeah, can you pay down the debt? You know, and there was significant debt when I took over the business. And you know, it was a we were a very cash generative business, so that was the focus. Um, you know, being a being a, a listed company. Your reporting cycle is very different. We're on AIM, obviously, so it's twice a, twice a year. You need to go out to, to the investors and do your roadshows and so on. And frankly, yeah, that that's actually, I find, very, very positive. I mean, it makes you think about the business. Yep. You get a lot of feedback from yeah, a whole number of investors rather than just you know, the three people that come to your monthly, monthly yeah. meeting. So for me, actually, it, it gives you a lot more value. But I think for us, it also gave us a lot more flexibility. You know, I was always frustrated that the business had some great potential that was never realised. You know, today, I believe that if we don't realise that potential, it's down to me and the management team. So it's in our control today. And the investors, you know, they're, they're great. Yeah, they really support us. You know, we're, not, we're not being told or given direction every day or every month or every week of what we need to do. Uh, and we just go out and report and say, saying what we're doing. And we get you know, really, really strong support from our investors. Fantastic. You've mentioned management team and you've referenced Rodres on a number of occasions now. And obviously, Rodres is the CFO of Strix. Um, how do you divide responsibilities then in terms of from a public market and, and, the, and the investors that you've got? Do you handle a certain number and Rodgers handles a certain number? How do you do it between you? No, I think um, you know, Rodgers Rod is, is, is great support and you know, she, she knows the numbers back to front and, and gives me tremendous support in those sort of areas. I mean, I, I, I certainly am the front man in terms of talking to the investors, whether that be retail or you know, sort of the, 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 the key investors we've got in the business. Um, and I do a lot of work in also you know, with, with our brokers, obviously, to, to try and find new investors. But, yeah, Rogers is always there supporting. Yeah, absolutely, she's got tremendous credibility with the market. And I think from, from the IPO onwards, you know, everybody respects her. So, yeah, she's a really key part of, of that sort of front face to the marketplace. But between the two of us, you know, she, she uh, I think, often is seen as that quiet person in the background. They obviously don't know Rogers very well. Um, <laughs> but actually, she's a tremendous support and, and is always, always you know, looking at ways to, to improve the business, to push me harder, in fact. So you know, she does give me a, um, a tremendous amount of support to drive harder. I'd like to touch on the board. Um, so obviously, again, you're a PLC. A board is very different to how a private company would look to construct the board. How did you go about constructing your board? Did it change from private equity ownership to when you then became a PLC? And what was important to you when you were selecting those individuals? I mean, that's, that's a very, very good question because I think yeah, the, the board has changed quite a lot over the time. So in, in 2015, before we listed, you know, it was all about getting a team that I could trust, safe pair of hands, stabilise the business so that we could actually put some credible numbers up there and you know, go to the market you know, in a position where we could sell, sell the business. And yeah, that, that was really good. We had some great people on board, you know, uh, been with the company for very many years. When we listed, you know, they... they supported the company and, and again it was very good although I think some, for some of them quite difficult because really it was only Rogers and I that were actually that front-facing um, group so it took them a little while to adjust to that different world because it was much more dynamic environment um, as we then continued we had a capital markets day 2020 we, we sort of set the ground that we were going to double the business in five years something that I'm totally committed to 
as, as, as is the management team today. But that actually mean, meant we had to make some changes because we needed to make sure we had the right people to deliver that five-year growth. And certainly over the last two years, there's been quite a lot of change in that, in that board and certainly the level of management under the board where we've needed to strengthen certain parts of the business to make sure we can actually achieve those growth targets. During your time as a PLC, you've experienced what I would describe as mildly challenging macro <laughs> um, situations, be they multiple elections, Brexit, COVID, and now obviously we are experiencing difficulties with Russia and the Ukraine. How has the market treated you during those those crises? That's a, that's a really challenging question. Um, I think the market itself has, has treated us fairly well, uh, to be honest. Although you, you, I think it does depend on on the types of investors. So our core investors have been really supportive. Yeah, they're there for the long term. You know, and yeah, th- those meetings are always extremely positive and constructive. Yeah, I think we had a, a period of very strong growth. Um, you probably actually exceeded the expectations yeah, at yeah, the time. Yeah. Um, and then you, know, the market today is has been a little bit more challenging, and Correct. so. Yeah, that has changed. Today, yeah, our core investors are still very, very strong. Yeah, I think the retail segment is, is quite hard to manage. Yeah, that, that's an area where yeah, if you get a bit of bad news in China or you get, you get a, an election or something else, they, they can jump to conclusions and, and change things very quickly. With they're very more small. volatile? Yeah, they're much more volatile. So yeah, one of the challenges I, I've found is, is trying to manage or, or to educate those, those retailers is quite difficult to get enough information out in the marketplace. It's something that we certainly work with. How do you access that retail investor base then? Uh, we, we have, we have, a, we have a, a company that goes out to do that. I mean, I, I have attended quite a number of, of sort of um, seminars with, with certainly the, the, the high net worth individuals in that, in that segment. But even then, you know, I, I still think it's very hard to, to, to just get enough um, time with those, with all the other things that you're trying to do. So that's definitely an area of focus we have today. Um, just trying to make sure that we're getting information out there as much as we can. You know, we've just done a whole rebranding. We put new websites out there. There's a huge amount more data on there than there was in the past. So, yeah, we really are starting to sort of get up that digital curve, if you like, and then try and find different ways to reach people. Okay. Final question, Mark. So I ask every every guest who joins us, um, you have your final dinner, and I often say the same line: it could be death row, it could be you know you're you're never going to have another day on planet Earth. You get to choose three guests to join you around the table. That could be anybody, alive, dead, any walk of life. Who would you like to surround you around that dinner table? Well, the, the good thing there is you haven't said famous people, so it has to be my wife, no question about it. And, and I have to say, you know, we have, I haven't mentioned her in, in, in any of this discussion, but you know, she is absolutely a rock behind me. I mean, I, I may be that, that introvert, she's the extrovert, you know, no question about that, but you know, she, she has given me tremendous support. And yeah, we, we bounce ideas. I mean, she's an HR specialist, so she would have to be there. But I won't count her as one of the three, because that, that's probably unfair. Well, good to know, Mark. You've got some brownie points. I, I've, well, I've got to put that in there, yeah, because yeah, with all the travel I used to do, I, I, need, I needed the brownie points. you got a long points. drive back yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but no, three people. Okay, so the first one for me would have to be you know, Her Majesty the Queen. I mean, I think you look at somebody like that, you know, she devoted her life to the country. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And yeah, if you wanted a role model in terms of, of work ethics, you know, um, professionalism, it's all there. She's revered by just about everybody around the world. And I think if you look at her career, and we're just coming up to the Jubilee, so it's really timely, yeah, the, the things she's had to go through, when we talk about Brexit yeah, and, and yeah, COVID, yeah. I mean, they've gone through a lot more than we've had to go through and adapted you know, throughout that process. So yeah, absolutely, I think 
you know, her story is amazing and, and somebody that I really would respect and, and revere. So that's that's one for you. So we do have the military behind us who are now going to do a procession. So the Queen's guest number one, so I'm assuming number two and number three would be comfortable to have dinner with the Queen then. Number two? It's got to be, for me, Isaac Newton. Interesting. An incredible individual. I mean, I, you just... Everything around the world, whether it's maths, whether it's looking at the, the, the sort of the stars, he's been involved in everything. And for somebody to have so much influence on the world, I think is is quite incredible. Uh, and yeah, how he did it, how he sort of got that devotion, I, I find quite incredible. So yeah, as as a, a, an engineer by heart, you know, I, 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 yeah, he would be my number two. Third. Third is more difficult. I, I struggle with these. So I think third for me, which is a bit of a, a sort of off the wall, would be Clint Eastwood. Really? You know, I, I love his movies, or I used to love his movies, you know. He's Which incredible. era? Actor, uh, director? Where is um, he? Both, and I think that's that's really quite interesting, because I, I used to love him as, as the actor, and some of the later movies where he was directing, I mean, to change that through his career was quite exceptional. But yeah, I think he'd been very influential, actually, and I, I just I love his movies, so yeah, yeah, I think he'd be great. Okay, I like that. So Mark, I'm going to turn around, we've got the, we've got the US military serenading <laughs> us, we're in a beautiful location, you are one of my most favourite clients. <laughs> and uh, I don't say that to everybody, but I do mean it to you. I'm going to cheers your glass now. Thank you for joining me on the Founder Chief podcast. Cheers. Thank you very much. Top one. Cheers. cheers, Mark. Thank you for listening. If you're an entrepreneur or CEO and have a story you would like to feature or would like to suggest a founder you'd like to hear from, drop us a line at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. That's live, L-I-V-E, at zeuscapital.co.uk. Or follow us on social media at Founder and Chief. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for Designated Investment Business and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed.